So that's why I say helicopters have everything to an aerodynamicist, right? They, they, they don't go supersonic, but those blade tips do sometimes. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to episode 12. I'll tell you what, this is a great interview that you're going to hear today. We get to chat with Susan Gordon, who is the NASA Rotary Wing Project Lead. So that means she gets to oversee all the helicopter research that happens at NASA. Can't wait to share that one with you very shortly. I'm going to mix the format up a little bit today, and I want to read you a quote, and then at the end of the show, I'll tell you who it's from. Okay, here we go. You are professionals trained to deal with three things that can kill you. Gravity, combustion, and inertia. Keep them under control, and you'll die in bed. That's pretty good and on the money, I reckon. So stick around to the end of the show to find out who that was from. As usual, today's episode is brought to you by trainmorepilots.com. If you're looking for some marketing tools and resources to help bring in more flying business, then this is the website you'll want to visit. Other things that are going on, I've just booked in for late November to do my instructor renewal. We've just had part 61 changes come in here in Australia. So this time around, it's looking like it's going to be a bit of a paperwork nightmare as I need to get a complete license reissue and show justification for all the quals on my current license. So wish me luck. Part 61 is definitely causing some angst here in the Australian community as we try to work it all out and wait for the errors in the legislation to be fixed up and, and ironed out. All right, let me tell you a little bit about Susan Gordon, who you're going to hear next. As I already mentioned, Susan heads up the NASA Rotary Wing research team and has done so for the last eight years. Now just think about that. So eight years of heading up the guys and girls that are at the cutting edge of helicopter research and you're about to tap in and, and get some of the, uh, the latest information that's happening there. So a total of 15 years at NASA and before that another 15 years as a researcher in the US Army's Aero Flight Dynamics Directorate Susan Gordon has a Bachelor of Science in Aeronautical and Astronautical Engineering, a Master's of Science in Aeronautics, and she's a recipient of numerous awards, including the AHS Augusta Westland International Fellowship Award, two NASA Outstanding Leadership Medals, the NASA Exceptional Achievement Medal, the Army Civilian Medal, and the Army Research and Development Award. As I said, I'm really excited to bring you this chat with Susan. It was a lot of fun. And Susan passes on a heap of info. Let's get stuck in. So, g'day, Susan. I'm talking with uh, Susan Gordon from uh, NASA. Thank you so much for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be here. And look, I'm, I'm quite excited about this. And as I said, I spoke to you know pilots of the airfield today, and uh, they gave me a bunch of questions, and, and they were really keen to hear too because. You know, getting some of that research back end is, you know, there's a big disconnect, I think, and we'll find out, I guess, between what you guys are doing there at NASA and research-wise and, and, you know, what we sort of uh, learn as we go through our pilots course. So we can really see, yeah, what the, the cutting edge is and what we can look forward to. So, Susan, like, I've read out your backstory before going to this interview, but you've pretty much spent your whole, it seems like you've spent your whole working career around helicopters. Oh, that's true. That's true. I, I didn't uh, study them in college and university, but after I got into the working world, I started working for the Army and their research organization in helicopter and aerodynamics, and then I moved to NASA and doing pretty much the same kind of thing. So you did um, basically aerodynamics or engineering through university and then straight into the Army. What, what were some of the early Army um, or testing you were doing? I've always been in the research side of things, so a lot of that is looking out in the, you know, what's going to happen next and, and what do you need to know and how can you improve on the current technology. So some of the, the early things that we looked at when I, I came to work for the, for the Army about 30 years ago were, were things like the Kiowa Warrior, the OH-68D, was 
they were going to put a mass-mounted sight and a tail rotor on it. And, you know, how would that mass-mounted sight interact with the tail? That vehicle had had, had as a, as a two-bladed tail rotor, had a little bit underpowered tail rotor. And so when you went to a four-bladed, was that mass-mounted sight going to interfere? And those kind of questions that came up that we looked at in the wind tunnel. And how, like, well, I guess we'll talk about that process, but is that a like a theoretical mathematic process and then you go and test it in, in the wind tunnel? Or is it you sort of mock up an engineering model and do the wind tunnel and then take the data from that? Or, or could it go each way? There's different ways you can approach it depending on where you are in the design cycle. Where we mostly do it on the research side is early in the cycle when they're looking at the concepts. You know, do I want the tail here? Do I want it up? Do I want it down? And we, with a small model, it's a lot easier to make those kind of changes and look at the effects. And so then once the configuration is set, then it moves on to the more detailed uh, engineering and design and, and flight tests and that sort of thing. And is there something you love about helicopters that you've kept with them all the way through on the rotary wing side rather than going back to fixed wing or to the space side of things? Well, I did take a little uh, jump back to the fixed wing side for, for about five years. But um, the thing is that once the, the helicopters get in your blood, I, I, that's what I say, they're in your blood. You just can't shake them out. They're, uh, they're fascinating. I mean, they're fascinating from the standpoint of, of society, what the role they play, the things they do, how they you know, help people and go places no, nothing else can go and land places nobody else can do. And then from the technical side, I mean, there's, I hate to say it, every problem you can imagine, there, there it is on the, on the helicopter, and it's how do you, you know, work with that and make it better and, and uh, keep, them, keep them flying and flying well. And you picked up your license at, at some point. So was that early on or was that after quite a, a while doing the, the, uh, the testing? It was about three years into, into working for the Army, and um, I, I hesitate to, and I say in the presence of real pilots, you know, claim that I have a pilot's license because I'm a very low-time private pilot, but it really gave me a feel for, you know, the capabilities and just the the love of the vehicle because it's just so, uh, I guess it's so fantastic, you know, when you, when you pick up and you get that feel of speed, and then I, I say, I guess I must be really nosy and stuff because I love to be in sort of the, the lower end of the, of the flight altitudes, and you can see so much, and you just have that view of the world. Do you get much chance to, to, to fly now with the testing and doing? Is it more laboratory-based? No, I, I don't really get to fly in the, in the job that I have. Um, as I said, I'm you know, very low time, and the, the folks that fly uh, our experiments are very experienced pilots that, that really you know, know, know the machines and are experimental pilots and for the, a lot of times. So I, I don't get to fly, but I, I get to, I guess, and enjoy the results of the different flight tests that we have. I was checking with the guys too, and we were saying that, you know, I'm hoping you either got prior recognition for your uh, aerodyne on your license test or uh, did you ace that going through? Well, that was interesting because, you know, the, the flight schools have their sort of set, um, you know, set, I, I guess you would call it exams and uh, those kind of things. And so I knew most of that going in. The, so the aerodynamics part wasn't that hard for me in terms of that testing. The pieces and parts that I had problems with in getting the license were uh, I'm not all that coordinated, so I'm not a natural pilot. And, you know, so I, I had to uh, really work at that in the communications. So those are the parts I had trouble with, not as much the, the exam part of how the, the helicopter works. <laughs> yeah, I would hope so, after that, that uh, amount of background. But uh, all right, Susan, so can we talk about your role then? Can you sort of describe uh, what your current position is and, and talk a little bit about the, the Rotary Wing project there at NASA? Sure. Uh, well, let me start off by saying, you know, first, when you think about NASA, a lot of people, it's the National Aeronautics and Space Administration uh, here in, in the United States. And most people think the astronauts, the space shuttle, the International Space Station, and that's a huge part of what NASA does. It's about 93% of what NASA does. But NASA also does aeronautics, and that is airplanes and helicopters. And that's kind of a lesser known piece of the puzzle of what NASA does. And so what, I, what my current position is, is the project manager for the rotary wing or helicopter program at NASA. And uh, what we are chartered to do is to look at what kind of tools and technologies and capabilities are needed to really push forward what we can do with rotary wing vehicles. So how do we explore what new capabilities, if, if they could be brought to bear, what could that enable in the 
commercial transportation and also our you know existing missions. So kind of what that means is you know today we use helicopters for certain things and a lot of we don't usually use them for scheduled air service at least not in the United States. And what we'd like to see is you know to be able to break the barriers down and let us use helicopters in much greater demand and in greater expanded missions. So our goal is to figure out how to make that happen. And are you fairly self-directed as far as coming up with your research projects or do industry or defense come to you and say, hey, this is uh, something we, we really want or a problem we're coming up against? Uh, how does the allocation of, of what you're working on uh, pan out in your, in your budget and in your, in your calendar, I guess? Sure. So, so what we have is um, we are allocated a specific budget and right now that's running at about $24 million dollars uh, U.S. dollars. That actually seems and, really low. Uh, like, you know, when, you, when you're talking helicopters in general and aviation, that seems like a, quite a low amount for research. It is, I think. It, the United States Army budget for research is about $100 million. So we're about a quarter of that level and concentrated on the civil side of the, uh, the helicopter research. It's not as large as some other uh, countries are putting into to helicopters. But it still, I think, enables us to do quite a bit with the money that we have. So we have about 100 people across the country working for NASA on rotary wing research. They're split at, at three research centers. So it's uh, I'm here at NASA Langley in Hampton, Virginia. And then we have our propulsion researchers uh, doing engines and drivetrains at NASA Glenn in Cleveland. And we also have our group that a lot of people are familiar with at NASA Ames in uh, Moffett Field, California. Uh, that's where our large uh, wind tunnel, the, the 40 by 80 by 120, that you maybe have seen like a full-scale V20 or XV-15 in that uh, picture of that in that wind tunnel. Uh, so that's where that facility is. When did the rotary wing project um, basically get stood up as a, as a separate entity? What's the history there? Well, we've had sort of an off and on history. Uh, the in the 1970s uh, through the early 1980s, the rotary wing research at NASA was was very strong, and it was also kind of combined with um, the uh, vertical short takeoff and landing research. So there was a lot of activity on uh, particularly tilt rotor configurations, and that's where the XV-15 experimental uh, uh, vehicle. That's the time frame that was done, and that was a collaboration of NASA and the Army and Bell Helicopter. And so we had a lot of flights, a lot of flying in that time frame to sort of prove out that concept. And of course, that later evolved into the, so the V-22, not exactly, but it was sort of heritage. And so we're excited to see that, that concept deployed uh, and in production. Then, then in the late 80s, early 90s, kind of the NASA investment rotary wing sort of um, changed a little bit to shift to how can we look at transport aircraft, but using vertical lift or short takeoff and make them runway independent. So, you know, try to move off the main runways at these really busy airports. And so we had quite an effort in that for a long time. And again, the tilt rotor concept came out to be the best concept to to be able to move a large number of people, but not tie up runways. In the early 90s, the NASA investment kind of dropped off some and the rotor craft investment went down, but in about 2005, it picked back up. So the the current rotary wing project that I run has probably got started in about the 2006 timeframe, but we have a long history and heritage of working on helicopters and tilt rotors within NASA. Wow, that's great. And yeah, like the, you know, the V-22 looks fantastic. And and just in recent, uh, even weeks, there's been, you know, a couple of new designs announced as well for uh, upcoming uh, Army projects. So there's some exciting stuff happening there as far as design-wise goes. Yes. How do people get into uh, NASA? Is it, you know, there's a job adverts in the paper and you apply or, or does it go through universities? How do uh, people end up there? Well, you know, people come here in a variety of ways, but recently they've been associated with uh, some of the vertical lift centers of excellence that are in the United States because working for NASA directly as a government employee, you, you do need to be a U.S. citizen, but working as part of our contractor team, that's not a requirement. So we have folks that come from uh, from the vertical lift centers of excellence, that's 
Penn State uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, University of Maryland, and uh, the Georgia Institute of Technology. So those are particular centers where they've got an emphasis on training engineers and rotary wing. And then we also, of course, take applicants from a lot of other places. And NASA has a lot of educational outreach where we have interns and summer interns come in and some of them come in to our areas and sort of, like I say, get hooked on hooked on helicopters and, and they want to come back. Yeah, so, and, and from outside looking in, like I'm imagining, you know, as a pilot or, or an, especially as an engineer, getting a job at NASA would be kind of fairly high up as an aspirational, uh, you know, goal. A lot of people, we, we enjoy that, I think. A lot of people think highly of the agency uh, and our workforce surveys that people that work for it think highly of it too. So it's, it's uh, been ranked as one of the best places in the U.S. government to work. So, so we're happy with that and it helps us attract some of the real talent out there because, you know, with, with the competing things like, um, you know, Google or some of the startups that have real exciting and, uh, and more maybe high paying jobs, it's really nice to be able to attract some of the high high engineering talent that wants to come and work with NASA. So we're very lucky in that way. In your role as the, in the director of managing that, it must be some interesting, and I won't go down that track too far, but uh, just personnel-wise, like, uh, you know, it seems like these really highly uh, genius people sometimes have a bit of a, a funny bent to them and it can be hard to herd. Like, it's a bit like herding cats. <laughs> well, uh, they, in the early days, when they talk about, say, NASA Langley history, they call... The, the folks around the area, the locals, uh, because everybody had come into the area, they used to call them the, the NACA nuts because they were known to be eccentric. So um, it's kind of a, a badge of pride, if you might want to say it, <laughs> around here. So we have a lot of strong personalities, a lot of people that, you know, they, they, they're very, very smart. So when they get all together in a room and they have disagreement, it can get, it can get uh, exciting. But I think in the end of the day, everybody's, working towards the same goal and they're working to make things better. And at the end of the day, you know, they're looking at what's the makes the best technical sense and how do we get there from here? And so, you know, I think it's like every workplace It has its moments, but we are, I guess, very lucky to have as many talented people as we do working for us. That's some of the people side. What about the, uh, the gadgets? What are some of the the cool gadgets and, and tools that you get to play with? Well, I have to say, sometimes, you know, you look around and you think, man, I can't believe they pay me to do this. <laughs> but, um, you know, we, we get to work with some of the, the most, I think, unique facilities and equipment uh, in the world, in, in some cases, um, where we've designed specific equipment to test for, for, you know, individual things where we're testing for, say, aerodynamics. Can we make things go you know, faster or farther or longer, use less gas? And, and a lot of that kind of work is done in our wind tunnel facilities. And we have them throughout NASA. We have different wind tunnels of different sizes. Uh, for helicopters, we mostly test in the 40 by 80 uh, at NASA Ames that I mentioned, which is a very large facility for testing a big, either big pieces or whole helicopters. Uh, recently, we tested, for example, a full-size UH-60 rotor. In that, in that wind tunnel, not with the whole body underneath it, but just the rotor itself looking for some things. Uh, the other kind of wind tunnels that we use a lot are, uh, there's a, a wind tunnel called a 14 by 22 at NASA Langley. And in that one, you can look at not quarter scale models. And that's about the size you want to look at to look at configurations, you know, where to put tails or maybe wings or stores or things like that. And we also then use the transonic dynamics tunnel at at NASA Langley. That tunnel is very unique in that instead of running the wind tunnel in air, we use a heavy gas. And that heavy gas lets us simulate all the dynamics. So we get the, the, true, the true way that the rotor blades are going to bend and twist as if they were in flight. And that's a unique capability. Okay. So does that allow you to have a lower flow and simulate a higher airspeed? Or is it, it's, it's different again? It's, well, because it's a heavy gas, it's, it uh, lets you simulate the, the, the right speed and the right uh, dynamic response of the blades at one time. So you can do two types of testing at once, and that's a, a good way to look at how, what happens, say, with whirl flutter as, uh, as something like a tilt rotor or 
in a uh, in a fixed wing world, the Lockheed Electra was a, a prime example of something that had whirl flutter when those propellers just hit this dynamic mode and start shaking real hard. So you want to know where that boundary is, and that tunnel's a it's designed specifically to look at that sort of thing. And how fast can you get the air in the other ones, or even that one? What sort of speeds can you get up to in the tunnel? Uh, and again, it depends uh, which tunnel it is. So the um, the transonic dynamics tunnel can go up into the transonic range, range for speeds, uh, and that's in the Mach 0.9 range. Uh, the 14 by 22 is more of a subsonic low-speed tunnel, so you're going to be able to get up to about 200 knots. And the uh, 40 by 80 in Ames, you can get up to about 300 knots. And that's in general, depending on the kind of model that you have testing. Sure. And it sounds like, like I don't know, is it, is it mainly engineering side of things? Do you do a lot of flight ops where you instrument aircraft out and actually take them flying to get measurements, or are you more ground-based? And the, the rotary wing program is, I would say, more ground-based. Uh, we have uh, access to some partnerships, uh, particularly with the Army. And we use their instrumented, they have a, a helicopter that's instrumented for a lot of different uh, flight activities. And we also will lease, a, lease helicopters or a partner, say Bell Helicopter or McDonald Douglas Helicopter, well, now it's Boeing, will bring, we'll bring a helicopter and partner with us. And so that um, we provide things like the, uh, if we're doing an acoustic test, we have a, a team that goes out into the field and they deploy microphones and in lots of different directions. So we can measure the noise as a helicopter goes through different maneuvers. So we, we deploy our, our flight test team of acoustics and their microphones and those type of things, and the partner might bring the aircraft. So we're, that's basically how we're doing flight tests right now. We don't have any particular flight assets that belong to NASA that are helicopters. I'll ask you. I'll come back to the acoustics one, but because um, I want to ask you about uh, blade slap and, and the testing, you might have some data there. But when you partner up with, say, Bell brings a helicopter out, and you do a particular uh, test with them, how's the ownership of that data work? Because they're providing, you know, some of the asset and things like that. Does that become proprietary information back to the company, or is that open source information then from NASA? How's that sort of relationship work? So the. Uh we, we first of all we iron that all out ahead of time so that we don't don't get to the end and say hey what's going to go on but so, so we have an agreement with them and what we negotiate are exactly what you're saying what's what's the intellectual property rights on this and because we NASA are a government agency then uh, spending our taxpayers dollars we want that data to be available to uh, the rest of of the community so we typically negotiate open rights for those data. We just, for example, the uh, an acoustic test with Bell Helicopter, they used a, a Model 430, and we had negotiated open rights. And so we published a uh, open publication NASA report with uh, the results of that data so that the rotorcraft community, and particularly the, the taxpayers in the, in the United States, can have benefit of that work that we did. Okay. Now, you know, the benefit to our partner is, of course, they see that data first, right? You know, they're with us when we take it. So, so there is a benefit to being a partner, but there's a benefit to the rest of the community as well. Yeah, sure. Um, back on the acoustic side, I don't know if, if you can give me an answer or not, but uh, in the Huey and the Iroquois, basically if you're roughly about 80 knots and you're in a slight descent and in a bit of a turn, that's kind of the, you know, when you get that, that max walk factor where you have that real big uh, blade slap. Is yeah. there any, do you have any data on that sort of stuff? If you really want to uh, do a beat up over the top of someone and, and get that happening, is there a, uh, a set, you know, flight characteristics for uh, for aircraft or is, it, is everything different? And uh, I don't know, is, in the acoustic testing that you do, was there a particular configuration that made the max noise? Well, that, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information on the noise right now. But the Huey, the Iroquois were prime examples of, of what we call this, where the, the tips are moving so fast, particularly in that forward speed, you know, where they've got a high RPM and they've got a big blade and they start moving fast forward, that advancing blade side, um, the, one of the noises will be a shock uh, that forms on, the, on that tip. So that's why I say helicopters have everything to an aerodynamicist, right? They, they, they don't go supersonic, but those blade tips do sometimes. 
So you have supersonic flow out there. And as soon as you have a shock and supersonic, you have that a very, very high impulse noise. Then you have, in addition to that, uh, when you're not going quite that fast, you'll also have the blade vortex interaction or that strong wake from a two-bladed system. The, the, the vortex that sheds off the tip, it comes around and the next blade smacks right through it. And that's that blade slap noise, you know, the wop, 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 that is so annoying to people. So, so what, they've, what we've done, and there's been a big lot of research on this blade vortex interaction, they call it BVI, and how, how, does that, how can you reduce that kind of noise? Because that's the kind of noise that drives the community crazy and generates a lot of calls and complaints. So you'll notice that a lot of helicopters coming out have more blades, and that cuts down the strength of the, of the vortex that's coming off the tip. So that reduces the noise. They're also slowing the RPM down. And, you know, you'll see now tips, the tip speeds are around 700, 750 instead of up at 800 or 810 like the uh, Huey was. Um, the, you look at different types of tip shapes that are coming out or different blade shapes, and you'll see that the tips are changing. They're not just uh, going out and being a square cutoff tip anymore. And they're, um, they're quite complex too. There's a lot of different angles in, in some of those yeah. new uh, blades. Exactly. So they've got the new manufacturing techniques that let them let them uh, manufacture blade shapes that we know are quieter. So so part of this is the research end saying, hey, if you guys can make a shape that looks like this, it'll be quieter. And then the manufacturing folks have to figure out, can I really do that in a cost-effective way? And if I do it. Is, it, is that quiet blade, will that be operationally uh, viable? I mean, will it, will it be okay to, you know, to, to pass the test for, say, a bird strike? Um, is it going to accumulate a whole lot of ice that, you know, a different blade shape would not? So all those factors into to what makes a blade design. So do you guys get involved in that part of things? Well, we haven't been as much, but that's where we're going in the future. Uh, because what we've been doing in the past is saying this would be a quiet shape. But it's like, well, it doesn't make it onto the aircraft because of these other considerations. So we're taking a, a step back in that. I think you asked before, you know, how do you get your input? Well, we've been talking to manufacturers. And we've been, you know, we talk to operators and try to get input into what is really needed to get this technology onto the, onto the vehicle. And they're saying, well, you know, we get stopped here at this point in the design because of this. So it's okay, so we need to take a step backwards and include some of those considerations so that we give them something that will work. Is there some other recognizable um, either design outputs or configuration outputs that people would be able to trace back to the work you guys are doing there? So, you know, blade tips might be one, but is there other things you're working on that are actually out, have been taken up by industry and are in current designs? There's, there's quite a few things. It's sometimes hard for us to trace it because we, what we, we say is it's almost like our DNA is in some of the vehicles. Uh, we put out, you know, some research information about, you know, this kind of material of composites, particularly how, how do they work in the environment? How could you use them? What kind of characteristics they have? And a company will look, look at that research and then they take it and they of course work it in with their company design philosophy and their trade studies and how they're going to manufacture it. And sometimes when it comes out the other end, you don't, you don't see that direct link, but you can see that they've incorporated um, the research into what they did. So we, we say that it's, it's in there, but it's, you know, you can't say, oh, look, here it is and there it is. Um, you know, the thing that's the most obvious about uh, when I mentioned the XB-15 to the B-22, that's a very obvious direct link. Uh, but there's things like the, um, the Apache Block 3, and that's called the uh, this H-64E that has come out, it's got a new drivetrain and gearbox, and it's got a thing called face gears in there. And those face gears, that design and that concept was started about 20 years ago in our research lab in Cleveland. And what, I haven't but, heard of those ones. What, what do, what's the advantage with those? What, what's the difference? It, it lets you put a, um, a more compact, lighter weight gearbox that can still transmit that same amount of torque. So okay. it's just it's a different way of, of putting the gears uh, together and, and machining the gear faces so that it's it's like a different uh, it's a whole different gear design and that it, it takes us about 20 years to get it from the idea 
to a vehicle sometimes. Uh, a few other things that you you know you probably haven't you know looked looked at on the inside of of the aircraft or uh, we have had some other gearbox design uh, influences, particularly in the high speed gearboxes like that might be in the, that are in the V22 uh, tail rotors uh, where they're placed you know the high low medium uh, location which direction do they turn uh, that makes a difference in terms of their performance. And their, their handling quality is a sideward flight. Uh, you may have seen some configurations that have tail boom strakes, like a piece of angle iron that's either at the top or the bottom or both yep. of a tail boom. And uh, that was some work that NASA did. UK did some of that as well. So some of those configurations have the UK design. Some of them have the, the NASA design. Things, um, things like um, NOTAR, was that, that work come out of NASA or that was a, you know, like a individual design? No, NOTAR uh, was really came out of the Heritage Hughes helicopter that became, then became uh, McDonnell Douglas and became Boeing. Um, so that was um, not really a NASA design, but we did do some acoustic studies on that uh, with um, McDonnell Douglas helicopters at the time to, to identify the acoustic characteristics of that kind of configuration. On the website, it talks about there's, there's five sort of key areas that you guys are looking at at the moment um, going forward. So, again, I don't know if that's just the website of you, five areas, but it kind of broke them down into uh, you know a couple of different areas. So I was just going to see if we could maybe talk through those and, and give yeah. us an idea of what's the, the you know current uh, cutting-edge technology in each of those and, and where that's going. So the first one was talking about uh, variable speed uh, power turbine uh, demonstration. And yeah, can you break that one down for us? Sure. So the uh, overarching kind of where we're going is we we know that that helicopters, the barriers to to more usage are, you know, people want them to be quieter, they want them to be faster, more economical, you know, cost effective to operate because the operational costs are a big big issue. And so how can you make these you know the maintenance costs go down? How can you make the direct operating costs go down? and still get performance. And one of the areas, especially when we look at the advanced configurations, making them go faster, is we're limited a lot of ways in the physics by needing to maintain a constant RPM. Because you know how, how in the training, it's hold your RPM. It shouldn't go down too low and it shouldn't go up too high. We want to hold it right on the money at 100% RPM. And, and that's, you know, it's a lot of reasons for safety, a lot of reasons for the rotor aerodynamics. And it's also true that the engine, if you ask it to operate off that RPM point, the engine will, will uh, it's been optimized to operate right at that point. And anything off that point, it starts to really suck a lot of gas. So our question is, if we want to vary that RPM, give ourselves an extra a way to change the characteristics so that we could maybe lower RPM and go faster forward and not have that, that noise come up and buy this or not have the dynamic stall, the retreating blade stall, how can we get the engine to operate efficiently over a wide range of RPMs? So that's the main, the, the, the question that we're asking is, how can we change an engine design to be efficient over not just one point, but a wide range of points? And that's the idea behind the variable speed power turbine. So we're looking at how could we change the guts of the engine and the power turbine design to make that engine be more efficient over a wide range. So we're having to look at changing the, the whole design on the inside of the, the um, turbine blade design and, and how that would go through and how many stages and all those kind of components. And very broadly, and it has to be dumb it down <laughs> by the time we get to, get to understand it, but are you looking at variable, like changing the, the angle of incidence or the, or the pitch on the turbine blades? Like how would you actually, uh, what are some of the components that would go into an engine that would be different to a current engine to achieve that? What we'd like to see is um, the variable incidence is very heavy. If you put, we looked at that as a trade study, put that into the engine. What we'd like to be able to do is have some blades that are designed, the aerodynamics of those airfoil blades, designed so that they would hold an efficiency over a wide range of angles. And so we're looking at how, could, um, how can we change the design of those turbine blades so that they will, you don't have to move them, but they'll still be effective over a wide range. Uh, also, how can we operate them at 
and, and the low Reynolds number ranges that will happen to them if you start to, to slow down the speeds. You, you just dropped um, Reynolds number there. Um, oh, sorry. That's all right. I was going to say, is that a, is that a quickly a quickly explainable number or a... Reynolds number is the parameter that tells you basically when your drag is going to go up. So okay. so at certain speeds and sizes, you're going to have a certain amount of drag, and then when you get to a, a, a higher Reynolds number, which is usually a higher um, a bigger test article or a higher, say, turbine, a bigger turbine blade, it goes up and your drag will rise. So you want to consider where you are there to keep your drag down. Okay. Um, the next one on the list there was the, the two-speed uh, drive system. Is that related to the variable power turbine? Or? It is, in a way, because you say that the big question is, if I want to slow the rotor speed down, I could do it by slowing the engine down, and that's where our variable speed power turbine comes in. I could also do it by having a different kind of gearbox and shifting to a different you know, gear system. So having two different, say, speed ranges on my gearbox. I got my low drive and my high drive. Um, again, right now, we could throw an engineering solution at that, but it'll be very heavy, and that's not what we want. So we want to be able to do this two-speed drive system, not have a lot of power loss, and not have a lot of weight gain. So... The, the thing is, they say, well, you know, cars have variable, variable speed transmissions right now, but they don't transmit the kind of torque that rotorcraft requires. So it's not the same kind of transmission. But we are looking at different uh, transmission configurations, different ways to clutch, uh, so that you're always driving. You don't want to end up in you know, neutral when you shift uh, because you don't want to lose power to your rotor. Yep. And so how can you, you know, always have positive drive, have a lightweight transmission, but be able to shift between two sets of gear speeds so that if I wanted to go, you know, to slow my rotor down, so something, so I could push forward faster, I could do that. All right. Sounds complicated. <laughs> so I'm glad you guys are working on that. Uh, next one is the, th- the three-active rotor uh, concept. So yeah, what, what's, what's the three-active rotor thing about? Well, you, you let's see, the, the active, active rotor concepts are that while you're, you're doing all this um, research on noise and performance, a lot of what we found is I can make a low noise rotor, but it won't give me the, the lift performance that we need or the vibration performance. You know, it shakes too much. So how do, how do you take a design and have it do more than one thing? And what we're exploring is if you have, if you have say, a flap on the rotor uh, that can change at different flight regimes, can that can I give you kind of like having more than one rotor design but on a single rotor? You know, it's an, a way to actively control what your rotor looks like okay, depending so, on your flight regime. So at some point, if you wanted to be quiet, you could set it for, for quiet operation. Or, yeah. And then, yeah, again, coming to landing or taking off if you want to, you know, go for max lift. Um, exactly. Okay. So it might, be, you know, it might be scheduled. You know, you might say, okay, if I'm going to fly here, that's, I'm going to need to set it at this angle. Or and we're hoping that eventually it would be within the flight control system and that it would adjust that for you. There's a few ways to approach how to change a blade in flight. One of them is to have something out there on the blade, but that is very complicated. Uh, a couple other ways to do it are to have something in your pitch lengths, where the pitch lengths have something, uh, have a system that does, they say, an automatic small adjust to the, to the angle as you, you know, change the... Um, as it goes around the azimuth and spins. Uh, another way is to look at the, the swash plate. You know, can you do something with a swash plate? You know, and then there's the, I think, like I said, the further out things where you say, I'm going to get rid of the swash plate. That's a mechanical nightmare. And I just want to put something out on the blade and have these air jets blowing and let that be my control system. So that's, that's the way out in the future thing. Uh, are you going to call it whisper mode after Blue Thunder? I'm sorry, you know, it's very tempting to do that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next one, it talks about um, fluid dynamics. You know, I'm, at, I'm only guessing you've got huge computers that th- throw a lot of, um, you know, uh, processing power at some of these things. So, the, you know, the text here says the 35% accuracy improvements in, in computational fluid dynamics. So, I'm guessing that's more of a, a modeling and, and just being able to get closer to the real data. It is. You know, we can predict generally what, the, what uh, an airplane is going to do really pretty well. Uh, but you'll, 
uh, we're not real good at predicting what helicopters will do without getting to fly them first. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, as you, as you watch heli- new helicopters come off the line, you'll see that, you know, we've had to adjust the tail uh, in flight test and that sort of thing because we didn't quite understand what it was going to do when it really got to flight. So that is the problem we're attacking. We, we, we say we want to have it fly as designed and know what it's going to do when it comes off the first one comes off the production line. So we are looking at uh, using some very high-powered computing. Uh, NASA does have, uh, I think, think we've got the 11th largest supercomputer. And when, we, when they wanted to check it out, we actually ran a rotorcraft problem on that for them. To actually it says, stress use it. Up, yes, use up the whole thing. We said, we can do that. And so we, we ran... Um, some check cases for them, but we use a lot of computational power and you can't do that every day. Uh, and that's not going to be what a you know designer needs to have on their desk. So what we have to do is do those computations, figure out what those physics are, and then show how you can model that more simply and still get the right answer. Okay, so, 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 so creating a simplified model, so yeah, so a, a smaller computer or a less powerful computer can get still close to the, to the same answer. Yes. Yeah, so so you have to you know you have to have it right to start with, and then you have then then to create the simpler models. Um, you know the other way to, to approach that is to make your complicated models run a lot faster, and and so we're working on both of those aspects. Now I'm guessing like that, that so those same computations that you're using for helicopter airflow and for fluid dynamics in would then flow across you know, global stuff. So whether it was a boat propeller or water in pipes and a dam and things like that. So that all that work you're doing there would, you know, flow back into physics everywhere? It does in, in a lot of ways, um, particularly in, in the into propellers and things that need to move. So, if you know, things that move relative to each other, you know, if I'm going to drop something or um, and the, the hydrodynamics, they, they have a little different problem uh, because water is, um, is considered incompressible. So it doesn't have quite the same physics as air. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have to kind of work with that. But in, in general, your statement is true. You know, what we're learning in the physics and, and how we're operating and how we're optimizing our computer codes and the way we're reducing the models, all of that translates into other areas. Okay. And the last one that lists of five key areas is um, rotorcraft integration to, into next gen. Uh, yeah, what can you? Yeah, what's that one about? I think this one is probably one that that, um, that that your audience too could help us with if they have suggestions. Next gen is the what uh, the the Federal Aviation Administration of the United States calls calls the uh, the next airspace system. So they anticipate that it will have a lot of communication aspects and. Uh, a lot of different system features with some of the, um, I guess, uh, cockpit navigation and that sort of thing. So we say, well, what we want to make sure that the next generation helicopters and rotorcraft fit into the next gen airspace system. So it's like, oh, what kind of things, you know, keep us out of there today? And you know, these the main complaints that keep us out of areas and close heliports are noise, and then people's impression of safety and we say i say perception and impression because some of it is you know they're always seeing helicopters crash in movies yeah well even <laughs> the news because it's you yeah. know it's a newsworthy article if a helicopter that does crash exactly and so they get that in their head that if i hear a helicopter i'm a, I'm a little bit afraid because i think it's going to crash so in some ways our noise problem is not much as an is is annoyance yes but it's also uh, safety. So what are the kind of things that we need to do to make helicopters more acceptable to people every day flying in the airspace system? And some of those are low noise flight paths. How can we, if we have a given level of noise, how can we minimize that in, for the people in the area? You know, airports and, and airplanes, they, they know where they're going to land. For helicopters, we don't always know that. So we're, we're called out to different places. We operate off airport. So the people and the communities that we go to and, and we're operating around aren't used to the noise. They weren't really expecting it. And so they complain more. We have done studies that show that a helicopter, the same level of sound is considered more annoying 
than an airplane with the same level of sound. And so it has to do with people's perception. And, and that's a really difficult uh, topic to try to, to address because it's not really as much a technical barrier as it is a, a community uh, outreach kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, education and, as you said, perception, you know, regardless of what the, the figures show, if that's what they believe. Exactly. So I guess the other part of the next gen, though, though fitting in with the bigger thing would be speed, the fact that, uh, you know, there'd be more, uh, you know, as you said, you know, scheduled services if that speed could be picked up to actually cover more distance. Yes, so we're looking to, to, to push the speed forward. What kind of things would help us push the speed? And then we also need to look at how do we get the noise down and, um, you know, how do we improve the safety and survivability of helicopters? Uh, they, they typically don't have the same kind of treatment that transport aircraft have. So that, that is one of the reasons we were doing this recent crash test that I think you saw. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a good, good segue into that because, um, yeah, especially on Twitter and things like that, there's a lot of photos at the moment. It's a, a white, is it a, is it a Chinook frame? It was a 46, so... C9. Yes. I think. So the um, basically we were looking for a, a a structure that represented a lot of different aircraft structures. And if you look at that that frame, it's a metal frame. It's a it's typical construction with stiffeners and uh, stringers in the metal frame. So it kind of it represents, of course, that that helicopter's configuration. It also represents the Chinook, as you point out. It also represents some of the a smaller general aviation type construction. Uh, so we said, okay, we, we've got a couple of these that are being accessed by the Navy. So we were able to, uh, to bring them up to NASA Langley. We have this unique facility that lets us uh, do a controlled drop, uh, a controlled crash, if you want to say it that way, in, into this, uh, onto the terrain. And we picked to use soil because most helicopter accidents are into soft soil. The facility that we used was originally used for the training the Apollo astronauts to land on the moon. They, what they did is they put a lunar landscape underneath that, that big crane structure, and they used ropes to simulate the, uh, the, the gravity of the moon, and then the pilots practiced landing on the moon. So had they actually used rockets, or, had they, or was that simulated the, the actual thrust? No, they they uh, they use the ro- they use the the control rockets. Wow. Okay. So the after they got done with that program, they had this large gantry structure, and they converted it into a crash testing facility where we use a series of you know winches and ropes, and we set an attitude, and then we pyrotechnically release the test article. So at the last minute, as it swings into the ground, it's free. And it's it's not attached to anything because we've basically ex, um, uh, released the ropes pyrotechnically, and it crashes in at a certain angle and speed. So that's what we did this last time. We we took a CH-46 fuselage, and we did not have the engines or rotors because we were just looking at that structure, and we wanted to look at how it crashed and how the the metal frame crashed. And we did a test last year that was similar, it, it used the same, we had, we had two test articles, so it used the first test article and got the baseline, what happens to that frame under these kind of impact loads. This year, we put new kind of composite energy-absorbing subfloors in, sort of like a retrofit. We said, okay, now we want to see three different kinds, how the installation of these kind of floors could help with those loads and help uh, absorb the load so the occupants don't see it. So the one you just and the one you just crashed, it had three different sections in it with three different subfloors. Okay. There were two NASA designs and one design from um, a combination of Germany with an Australian company that had had done some research on composite subfloors, and we had an agreement with them to put their uh, design idea into that test article. So since we had the big fuselage and we were going to drop it, we also asked, was there anyone else in the community interested in partnering? Did they want to put anything inside the fuselage? And that's where all the seats and dummies um, came from is the people said, yes, if you're going to drop something and get those kind of crash loads, we want to see how our seats perform. We want to see how 
these sideways seats performed. We want to see there were two cockpit stroking seats, uh, and there was a three-person stacked litter in the back. And they were looking at how what happens if you have transporting, you know, in a, in a litter in a medical evac kind of situation. What happens if if the helicopter goes down to the litters? And I think we've seen from from the first test and from the second test that they need to have a little bit more stiffening in there to, to keep those those in place. Fair enough. Yeah, it's a, I guess it's a bad day if you're w- wounded, <laughs> then being yeah. transported by helicopter, and then something happens to the helicopter, things just aren't, uh, aren't working out for you. How long, Susan, how long would it take to, to prep the um, the test article, as you call it, or the frame, and then, then the analysis afterwards? How long does the, the analysis take? Because the, the drop is <laughs> it's like a, a two-second drop, but I'm imagining that the work either side must be immense. It is. They had a lot of high-speed video uh, cameras on board. They had a lot of accelerometers and data. So they have terabytes of data that they downloaded off. It'll it'll probably take them a good six months to really look at the details of what they had at, at every location. They're targeting to have some data ready for release at a public conference at the American Helicopter Society in May. So that's their target of being able to be, and and NASA, we are very picky about being confident of the data that we put out and release. So they think they can go through all their quality checks and have some data ready to release by May. Okay. In terms of how long did it take, you know, the test planning, you know, first we have to say, hey, this is what we want to do, find the test article. Prepping the test article, when they really start to instrument it and they they paint the dots on it, they painted, uh, you may have seen, hey, it's got polka dots. Yeah. Why did they change the, the paint job? So those, those are 8,000 one-inch dots put on by hand, and they're random. They're in a random pattern. And the reason that, that we do that is because we've developed a technique that we use cameras on the outside of the vehicle. And with that random dot pattern, the, the two cameras where we have watching it can tell how the dots move in and out, and they they both take pictures of it and you lay those pictures on top of each other and you can tell the movement of the skin and the stress and the strain in the entire side of that CH-46 as it hits. And so we can watch the skin tin can and show where the stresses are and exactly uh, correlate to where that's going to crack. Okay, so you'll have a computer model that you can play backwards and forwards and, and see, yeah. the, see all the, uh, the skin uh, move. Yes, and, and what we've got is that measurement of it and then we compare it with our computer model and try to make sure our computer model is accurate. You know, the idea is eventually you'd like to say, I can do this all on my computer. I'm confident it's right. I don't have to keep dropping and, and breaking things. Okay. Uh, there's a couple more things then, Susan. If you've got time, we'll quickly cover them off. Um, so I had asked a couple of people some, uh, some questions for you. So basically Rob Winter and Nathan Coyle were asking about lift. Now, again, the you know, simplest thing as we go through uh, flight training, you know, you learn about Bernoulli and then, uh, you know, there's different, uh, I guess, uh, interpretations out there, you know, how much is actually Newton's law of, of just, you know, purely shifting, uh, you know, air to make lift uh, and then some other ones out there. So what's, can you give a brief overview of, of what's the current best description of, of lift in, in 2014 that, um, that engineers use? Well, I think all of those things that you described are, are accurate. You know, Newton's laws of motion certainly hold. Um, the Bernoulli equation is a way of explaining some of, of how Newton's laws apply. The Coando effect is, is, is again, another explanation of, of what's happening as the fluid flow passes over an airflow. So, so we use all of those things in various forms. And and as I said before, we're, sometimes you use the most the most complicated model, and, and the things that we're using now track the actual fluid flow across an airfoil. And a lot of times, um, that's called the uh, Reynolds average Navier-Stokes equations. So uh, those are embedded into computer codes that then give us the very complicated flow across an airfoil. But once we have that information, you can then develop these simpler models of uh, that give you the a very you know a very close answer, but don't take as much computer time. And so we use a variety of those methods. 
depending on what kind of answer we're looking for. If you're, if you're looking for something, you pretty much know what it's going to do and you're very confident of your calculations already, then you can use a much simpler model. If you have something like one of these airfoils that or rotor blades we're trying to put a flap on or something like that, we don't really know how it's going to behave, then we, then we kick it up a notch and, and we go to the very complex um, Reynolds average navigator Stokes equations. So it depends how close to the yeah perfect answer you needed and how many how much yeah. resources you got to throw at it. Yeah. Okay, and basically uh, we, you know we talked about quiet and things like that, but as far as top end speed, uh, what are some of the big breakthroughs there, and how fast do you actually think um, we'll get helicopters or rotary wing? Well, that, you know, I think that's the big question that that, uh, that really is driving a lot of the industry today is what speed do you really need and uh, and how do you get there? You know, if you really want to go fast because you're going from here to there, you're going to pick an airplane. The question is we need to go fast plus be able to hover. And that, you know, add the hover, of course, is what makes us the helicopter's rotor wing unique and gives us all the, the special capability. So I think we've seen a couple of, of, of concepts come out recently the, um, the Sikorsky X2, where they're using a coaxial system, and they broke the speed record uh, unofficially for that. But they were then uh, X-cubed by a Eurocopter, then broke that later. So, and, th and that's a different concept too, right? The, the, X, the X2 is, two, is coaxial rotors, no, no tail rotor, but they have a propeller on the back. And so that's what we would call a compound helicopter. You know, it's, it's got more than just the single main rotor, a tail rotor, or a tandem rotor like the Chinook has. Yep. So it's got something that's going to help push it as it goes to forward flight. And the X, X3, the same way, they took a, a very efficient rotor and then added the two propellers onto it to get, that, to get the speed up. Tilt rotors have the capability to go a lot faster as well. You know, the, the question is, What's, what's the limit on, on their speed and efficiency and affordability? So we're also seeing um, Augusta Westland now is, the, is, is taking the 609 into certification, and that's going to be very fast. So there's, there's different ways to get the speed up. There's technical arguments on the pros and cons, um, and, and the question is how, you know, how fast do we need it for the mission, and, and how efficient can we make that happen? Okay, so there's no one or two particular things that's going to make a massive difference. It's just it's a, a trade-off between all those, like everything in helicopters, you know, weight, speed, power, cost. Uh, it's just going to be a continual trade-off? I think that's true. In our research program, we're thinking that all of those configurations are going to need some of the things that we're working on in terms of, say, that engine that can operate over a wide range, uh, in terms of a drivetrain that's efficient and lightweight, so we're, we're trying to make our research be geared toward a multitude of uses, uh, depend, you know, not dependent on one particular configuration. So we think that there'll be some, some need for active type rotors, whether it's you know, in the rotating blade system or whether it's on the swash plate side. And you know, those are the kind of things we think will, will be, need, be needed in the future for whatever those configurations uh, really takes hold. Oh, Susan, this is fascinating stuff. So thank you so much for, for going through it. I'll just I'll just answer the one more question just to close up and then, um, you know, if you've got anything you want to cover. But basically, from all, all that research you've done in your career and what you're seeing there at NASA now, is there any easy sort of tangible bits that the average helicopter pilot, you know, out flying the line now could take on board to actually improve their, their flying skills? Or is this more really early stage engineering things? Well, there are most of the time there there are engineering things that we look at. We, but but I would say you know, the pilots that are obviously uh, interested in, in your in your show, one of the things when I'm talking to audiences that are have more pilots or airport operators and them and things like that is is that some of the things that we know about noise I don't think are well are are, are well known in the community uh, of the operators. And that is things like that the that the noise is not maximum right underneath the helicopter. It's usually maximum 
uh, like when you're on approach, it's maximum out to your right about three to 500 feet off your center line path. And that's because the noise starts at your rotor and then it propagates like a wave out from your helicopter down to the ground. And, and so the, the idea that you're, you know, trying to, to minimize noise and things, the Helicopter Association International has a program called Fly Neighborly. And we think that would make, you know, that makes a big difference in how the community sees helicopters, you know, whether they think they're noisy or not. So, so from the pilot's perspective, if, if we could somehow get more together with them in uh, you know, how, how to operate the helicopter and what they need to, to, to fly it quieter, that would be, I think, a good thing. Uh, yes, this is the first time I've I've heard that because I'm just thinking of the local airfield where we do our approaches. There's a there's a school pretty much in that in that spot on the right hand side, but yeah, uh, yeah no, I've never actually heard that. And the other thing that happens is that it's depending on how you do a maneuver, um, you can be generating more noise or less noise. So we know that you could do a maneuver, you know, by a lot of different uh, combinations of collective and cyclic and pedals, and depending on which one you choose. Some some of those make more noise than others. Is there a rule of thumb there? For the- no, I, I don't really have a rule of, of thumb on that. That's it. It is it's rather vehicle dependent in some cases, and the the manufacturers are telling us, hey, nobody's asking us for this information anymore, so we're not going out and getting it. And we're like, well, why aren't they asking? And and we're finding that well because they they haven't really you know it's not been emphasized. So you know I would say to to folks. Look up the um, the fly neighborly um, protocols and take a look at those because a lot of times too, you know, we know some helicopters are noisier than others, but when the general person on the ground looks up, they say that's a helicopter. They don't say that's a Model X and that's a Model Y and that's a Model Z. They just say that's a helicopter and they paint everybody with the same brush. And so, you know, if we could have a more expanded um, awareness of how to minimize the noise i think in the end we all benefit from that great all right is there anything i haven't asked you that are are short or anything else you want to basically um cover while you got that sort of pilot audience well i just i appreciate the opportunity i i you know as i said i'm a very low time private pilot so i i have just a tip of the iceberg awareness of what the real pilots are doing every day and i think it's amazing so we do our best to give to give the pilots and the operators the, the best machine that they can that they can have, um, I appreciate certainly all the all the things that they do for the community and for the for the world, really. Well, likewise, yeah. If you can take back to your team and on behalf of all the pilots out there, look, thank you for the work you're doing, and, and thanks so much for sharing your time today. Well, it's sure been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Wouldn't you just love to get Susan out to your operating base and spend a day talking helicopter design? There were so many areas that we could have gone down, but we just didn't have time in, in this show format. Some of the big takeaways for me were that, that everything is a trade-off between speed, payload, noise, and especially cost. The different flight models that often close enough is good enough, and you only get incremental improvements in accuracy as you start getting more complex and throw Um, more resources at it. And then the last one was the growing importance and the amount of detail that's out there on noise abatement procedures. Look, I love helicopter noise and there's nothing better than the the thump of a Huey as it's flying towards you. But as we get more and more housing encroachment and city operations around our airfields and operating bases, it is becoming an issue. I'll link to the the Fly Neighborly Guide by Helicopter Association International that Susan mentions in the show notes. Again, it's something, it's one of those documents you know, I've never seen up until now. And it's really interesting to read with you know, graphs and charts showing some of the flight vector combinations that cause increased rotor noise. And things like this is exactly why I started the show. You know, one, for myself to be able to learn you know, more about helicopter operations and, and get involved, but also to really disseminate this great information that different pockets and different people in our industry have and share that out to rotary wing aircrew wherever they are in the world. So one of the things that Susan mentions is that they would love feedback from industry and aircrew about the things that they are working on and that we see as issues that need development going forward. So if you've got a question for Susan 
or you just want to say thanks for sharing her time and the info, then head over to rotarywingshow.com and look for episode 12. You leave a comment under the episode show notes and I'll make sure that gets to her. If you are an iTunes or Stitcher subscriber to the show and you haven't been to the website yet, then I recommend doing that so you can see the photos from the show episodes. And currently you can download a list of the top 10 helicopter books as submitted by you, the show listeners. In between shows, you can be part of the community on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash rotary wing show. There is also Twitter and you can hit me up on LinkedIn too. At the top of the show, I shared a quote about the three things that can kill you, gravity, combustion, and inertia. And that was from someone named Sailor Davis. The only if I could find about him is that he was a ground school instructor with the airline TWA. And that's pretty much all the reference that Google turns up and basically just repeats the same information. So if you know anything about Sailor Davis, let me know in the episode comments so I can add that to the show notes. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks again to the episode sponsors, trainmorepilots.com. And thanks very much to you, uh, dear listeners, from wherever you are listening in in the world. So have a fantastic week. I'm Mick Cullen. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers.